long before the book of Job was written down, it existed as a tale told round campfires. Uh, the form that you have it in, in your Bibles was probably completed around 500 years before Jesus, but most scholars, and I would include myself uh, among them in this position, believe that the story was told orally thousands of years before Jesus, maybe 2,000 or more. In fact, many would argue it is the oldest tale told in all of humanity. Since the beginning of time, it is that question. Shout it out to the heavens. Shout it out to anyone who will listen. Why? God, why? Job, you remember the story, has experienced terrible loss. His family's been wiped out. His livestock, his business, his home completely destroyed. He's covered head to foot in, terrible, in a terrible disease, painful boils. Why, God? Why? Where are you? Why are you not answering me? Why do you not respond? Give me a word. Give me a, a sound. Give me something. I cry to you and you do not answer me. Job is willing to risk his life, frankly. He's willing to blaspheme God, to curse against God, to do whatever it takes to get God to pay attention to him, to at least let him know that God hears him. Even if God does not care, Job wants to know, do you hear me? Are you there? He argues with his friends throughout the book about the nature of sin and, and a host of other things. But the most fascinating part is the mostly one-sided conversation until we get to the end between Job and God. The poet in Psalm 83 has a similar experience. God, do not keep silence. God, do not keep silence. Both of them are experiencing some kind of a crisis. You can read through the book of Job and see it, and I've already given you a summary of it. You can also read through Psalm 83 and discover what he is going through and why he is so over, over, overly concerned, so unbelievably concerned about the silence, the, the quiet of heaven. Silence, especially in a time of crisis, can be overwhelming. There's a, a preacher who nurtured his wife through her illness Every day, as the disease progressed and became more painful, he was there with her. As the pain became horrific, he did all he could to comfort her. He would wipe her brow, give her ice chips to suck on. He would hold her hand, did all he could. He was there when she breathed her last breath. And he said, the silence in the room took away my words. All language for me ceased to exist. He lost his voice. In the moment of her death, he could no longer speak. He had to resign from his church. He had to retire early. Many, many months later, with just a barely a, a whisper of a raspy voice came back to him, and he said to a friend, for me in that moment, there were no words. There were no words. Any preacher who's written more than two or three sermons has experienced something like this, the fear and the worry and the, the, the intensity that comes with, with getting ready week after week after week to prepare a word. May, may I confess for you that there have been times in my ministry when there was a crisis in the country or perhaps a crisis in my family when I too sat in my office, sometimes with tears, and said, God, I... I have no words. 
can you give me a sermon? Can you give me something, please? I, there's a congregation I serve. There are people coming desperate for a word of hope, please. I'm recalling two days after 9-11. I was scheduled to be out of the pulpit that week, but I sat down with my associate minister in the church I was serving in Atlanta and said, I, I think this is a Sunday that the senior minister needs to, to fill the pulpit. He's a great preacher, and he's, got, he's in a huge church now in, in Texas. But he looked at me and said, oh, thank God, yeah, you, you can preach this week. But when it got to Thursday, I was kind of overwhelmed by what am I going to do? What am I going to say? And so I called together a, an, an emergency meeting of the elders in that, in that church. The elders were the spiritual, are the spiritual advisors and leaders of the congregation. Six men and six women elected every year to provide uh, support and encouragement to the pastoral staff and really to the entire church. So I gathered these men and women in the parlor, and I just simply said, I, I, I brought you here because I don't know what to say. I don't know what to, what, what to preach on this week. I'm, I don't want to fill the sanctuary with cheap words or silly cliches or dopey stories or, or ill-timed humor. This is a major crisis in the life of our country, and I'm sure we'll have many in our congregation, if not most, here on Sunday. I just need your help. And we talked for a while, and after a while, my, my, my questions turned more into whines, and I kind of just whined, and I could see by their facial expressions and their body language, they were getting frustrated with me. I was getting frustrated with me. I was just whining, and nothing was really happening. And finally, I just blurted out and said, I don't know what to say. And my very good friend, Sid, who was former governing board chair, he was the governing board chair my first year in that church. I was 35 years old, really just a kid. He and I became very good friends. He said, that's what you say. And if that's the only thing you say, that you don't know what to say, that you have no words, we will understand the truth of it. Let those words be spoken. I still have my notes somewhere. I had a full sermon, but I opened by standing in the pulpit and saying, I have no idea what to say. And in naming the truth, you could feel the tension in the room, easing just a bit, just a bit. Could it be then that the power of silence is the place that we can turn for strength, for hope, for the encouragement we need in the quiet to move forward into whatever the crisis or concern might be? I wonder even if, if we're afraid of silence, not just that God will be quiet, but that God might actually speak. And so we fill the silence with banal cliches and silly jokes just to pass the time. The great preacher Barbara Brown Taylor tells a story of the time she went to church on a Sunday. She was not in the pulpit that, that week. On an Easter Sunday, she was on sabbatical. She went to another congregation. Place was full. Every chair was full. They had extra chairs set up. People were there. You know, people were there, even, even the ones who had been at bribed with mimosas after church to come to church. Even they were sort of leaning forward with anticipation, ready to hear what the preacher had to say. And then she said this preacher got up and he just told Easter bunny jokes. One after the other, after another, after another. Just kept telling him. In fact, when he is in his style, he would tell the joke, but then when he would deliver the punchline, he'd look up at the ceiling. And he didn't even notice that after 15 minutes, they stopped laughing. He got to the end of his sermon, and, and he said, Easter is God's joke on death. We, we need to laugh more. Happy Easter. And he sat down. Barbara Brown Taylor was sitting out there, and she said, I wanted to call the pulpit police and have that guy arrested. 
I wanted him put in handcuffs and dragged down the center aisle and thrown out into the street. I was so frustrated. Here were these people who were coming just for a word of hope. Maybe they were atheists. Maybe they were people who were full of doubt and worry. Their, my, their family lives were a mess. And all he had was a joke. But trust me, I, I'm sure Jim would, would, would acknowledge this. Any of our clergy would. Sometimes we aren't quite sure what to do because the silence can be so deafening. I, I got an email last week. I really did. Last week, I got an email. The subject line was, do you want to improve your preaching? And I thought, who sent this to me? <laughs> but I went ahead and opened it up, and it was a, a series of, of video lessons that you could buy it on a CD or you could download it on your computer for $99. What a deal, right? $99. I might be able to take an offering right now and collect enough to cover that. For, for, for $100, you can get these series of videos, and these two preachers would, would go through and, and give you their techniques and their ideas on how to improve your preaching. And so I Googled one of the preachers and, and looked up at his church and watched him preach, and, you know, he was pretty good. He was engaging and funny and, and, and was able to move from A to B in a way that made sense. He told stories that were, that were, were, were um, poignant, powerful. Now, he preached about 45 minutes. I'm not sure you want me to do that. Um, he also wore um, uh, skinny jeans and a really tight T-shirt, you know, that kind of showed, showed off his arms a little bit. I can guarantee you I'm not going to emulate that. But I was, I was moved by him. At, after a couple of sermons, though, I had this gnawing question in my mind, not only about him, but about myself. Was he telling the truth? Was he speaking a word of truth into the silence? I don't mean that he was lying or making up stuff that, that wasn't true. Was he, was he embodying his truth? Was he allowing the truth of, of his life, the truth of the people in his pews, was he allowing it to be spoken? The, what wakes me up at 3 o'clock in the morning as much as anything else is the same gnawing question. Do I have the courage to stand before our congregation and speak the truth. Barbara Brown Taylor, again, she writes, I wish someone would tell preachers not to lie. It is better to tell your own pitiful story, whatever that may be, than to puff it up by lying. I'm asked all the time, why do you tell stories about your family? Why do you tell stories about your family? Do you have their permission to tell those stories? Most of the time I do. Yes, I do. When I don't, I hear about it. Trust me, I, I know now always to ask for permission. But the reason, one of the reasons why I tell it is because that's how I've experienced the truth of God, is in the relationships with the people that matter the most to me. And I, su I suspect the same thing is true for you. In your family, in your friendships, that's where we experience the presence of God, the, the presence of community, maybe even here in this church, in this congregation, whether we're at North Campus or South Campus or somewhere around the world on a mission trip. It's in those places where this truth is told in our relationships and we experience God's very presence. My family is as crazy, wacky, strange, weird, and dysfunctional as yours. My friend Peter is a good doctor in Kansas City. He says, every family is dysfunctional. Some families are really dysfunctional. That's why we tell these stories, is so that we can speak the truth from the silence. Frederick Buechner says, if we're going to speak into the silence, let it be true. Job prefers, Job prefers the silence of God to the cheap and, and theologically ridiculous answers he's getting from his friends to the answer, to, to the question, of why. 
He'll take the silence over them on any occasion. I read a good preacher. Her name is Susan Sparks. She preaches at a church in New York City. She, too, is funny and engaging and poignant and knows how to move you in a sermon in a way that's fascinating. Last week, I heard a sermon that she gave on silence, and she noted that, that our culture is, is, is becoming, and there, there's a cell phone playing, of, of course. Our culture is, some, is sometimes almost being ruined by the plethora of noise that is out there. She notes, according to some research that she found, that too much noise actually can create higher blood pressure. Hypertension can become worse. Ulcers can form. Other physical issues are, can happen if we have too much noise in our life. Same thing is true in national parks. There's, there's been a, a, a sudden influx of noise into some of our national parks with so many cars and so many people and so much of that all over the place. It's affecting the wildlife their ability to forage for food, to mate and tend for their young. So there's a, she, she tells about Muir Woods. Have you been to Muir Woods? It's in, on the West Coast. You just go north from San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge, about five miles, 10 miles or so, turn west, turn left towards Muir, Muir Woods. It's a beautiful space, unbelievably sacred and holy space. Giant redwood trees are there. Muir Woods, discovered that things were getting loud. They moved the parking lot a long way away from the entrance to the park to eliminate as much car noise as possible. People are invited to walk, not silently necessarily, but quietly into the park. At the, at the park itself, there is, a, there is a, a, a decibel meter just at the entrance, kind of reminding you to keep your voice down. And they got rid of all their gas-powered vehicles. Now they use electric-powered vehicles to drive around the park to do the repairs and the work that needs to be done. And they've noticed something. The wildlife is responding. Spotted owls that are an endangered species, they thought they were lost to Muir Woods. Recently, two of them were seen. Two spotted owls were, were seen. It's as though somehow the reintroduction of silence into that national park has restored it to health. What, what's endangered in your life? Communication? Conversation? Relationship? Have you filled your life up with so many sounds, whether it's your phone or your computer or your laptop or your television or the radio? Some of you still have radios, I'm sure I do. We do, we fill all that up and what, what's endangered? What would happen? If we turned all of them off 30 minutes a day, what would we rediscover? Julie and I were at dinner last week. We had a, a free night, and we decided to take advantage of it. She didn't want to cook, and I was ready to go out somewhere. And so we went to a nice restaurant, had a beautiful meal. While we're sitting there engaged in conversation, another couple came in. We'd just gotten our salads. This other couple came in and sat down, and they were very well dressed. He was wearing a very nice suit. She was wearing a, a beautiful suit herself. And they sat down. The waiter came over and said, are, are we celebrating anything tonight? And he said, yes, it's our anniversary. Oh, well, congratulations. And he took their order, and... I really wasn't paying attention much to them, but about an hour later, Julie said, the couple celebrating their anniversary, the only person they've talked to was the waiter. They haven't said a word to each other. What's in danger in your family, in your life? Would a moment of silence give you courage? You know, the Bible talks about this very idea. Have you ever heard of the prophet Elijah? 
He's not, on our, he's not on my top 10 list of prophets that I read in the Bible. He's kind of an arrogant, sarcastic, mean theologian. I mean, he just attacks people. He sometimes literally cuts them to pieces. He gets into a big, huge argument with the prophets of Baal, not prophets of Yahweh, prophets of Baal, a foreign god. And he just cuts them down to size, and he's really kind of bragging about it. Well, Queen Jezebel, she likes Baal and the prophets of Baal. Queen Jezebel, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, she's like Queen Cersei. That helps understand who she is. She's an evil, conniving person. She and her husband Ahab, who's just as evil and just as conniving, they put out an edict. We're going to cut Elijah. We're going to cut him to pieces. We're going to feed him to the dogs. Well, Elijah, all of a sudden, his arrogance and his ego, are they're left behind. He's afraid. He goes to Mount Horeb, south of where King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are. He goes to Horeb, hides there in a cave. In the night, a wind comes. The Bible says the wind was so strong it broke the rocks. But God, Elijah said, was not in the wind. Then there's an earthquake. It shakes the entire mountain. And Elijah says, but God was not in the wind. And then there's, then there's a consuming fire. It burns everything around him. But God was not in the fire, he says. And then in the Hebrew, it's, it's beautiful the way it says. The best translation of it, then there was the sound of a shear silence, a, a sound of a sheer silence, and God was in the silence. It was in the quiet that Elijah rediscovered. Within the soul of our culture, we, we know and we understand the need for this silence. Sometimes, sometimes I think we fill the silence so much with all that noise and phones and everything else because we're afraid God might, God might actually show up and the Spirit might actually have something to say to you and to me. Do you remember the name Emma Gonzalez? She was a survivor of the Parkland shooting. Just a high school kid. A few months later at the rally in Washington, D.C., she stood at a podium like this in front of tens of thousands gathered there no doubt, more, multi-millions around the world. She opened with a few lines about what it was like in that horrific moment when the shooter began. And then if you recall, did, did you see this? She stood there quietly and in silence. There were some hoops and some hollers, a couple of shouts. A, a, a chant started up, but, but soon the silence became the sound of a sheer silence. And she stood there, one minute, two, three. Finally, she said, it's been six minutes and 20 seconds since I stood here. The shooter has ceased shooting and will soon abandon his rifle, blend in with the, st with the students as they escape and walk free for an hour. Fight for your lives before it's someone else's job. The silence empowered and strengthened the beauty of her words. It was the silence, the sheer sound of the silence that allowed her to speak the truth, to name it out loud and put it into the room, put it into the world, as it were. We know this sound. There's a reason that Simon and Garfunkel's song is still sung 60 years later. There's a reason my kids who are in their 20s Know that song, word for word. Which one am I thinking of? Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to be with you again.
And it ends how? It is the sound of silence. My friends, I pray in this day that you and I have the courage that we need to sit, to stand, to be together in a moment of quiet, trusting that even there we might experience and find the very presence of God.